Well, I mean, Ben, you do this for a living. Uh, I know I know Felix enjoyed the party, but like, I that was like, what, four or five years ago now? And I feel like my soul still hasn't recovered from being in the same room and like not, not wearing my finest suicide vest to that party. So kudos to you for uh, weathering the storm for the uh, the rest of us here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not exactly a war reporter, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's You've seen things fun. way worse than that. <laughs> way worse. Uh, well, this is, I, I guess I should uh, introduce uh, you and the guest for today. We're talking to a uh, bona fide uh, D.C. reporter. We're talking to Ben Terrace of the Washington Post about uh, his new book, The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Uh, ben, it's great to have you on the show because you've basically been programming uh, this show for the last couple of months. Like, I feel like half of the articles you talked about has been have been, you know, your byline. Whether it's uh, Sean McElwee, um, the guy smoking weed in Diane Feinstein's office, uh, the Tommy Tommy Tuberville food critic, national security aide. Uh, it's been a lot of good stuff, and we want to. I want to get into your your beat, like the the DC freak show beat that you cover, but. We got to talk about the biggest story in politics right now. I'm talking boxes, boxes and boxes and boxes. The boxes hoax continues and uh, Donald Trump and and his lawyer currently facing 37 felony counts of improperly handling classified documents and lying to the FBI about it. I guess like I'll begin here. Uh, we on this show uh, for years now have, you know, mined comedy material out of all of the times people have been promising that this is it for Donald Trump, he's going to jail, the, the Russian collaboration is real, you know, jail, jail time, the death penalty for Donald Trump, my sources say, and as well as had a sort of begrudging respect for Donald Trump in the fact that he has basically committed crimes his entire life without any fear of consequence and gotten away with all of them. And he still could wriggle out of this one, but I got to say, reading uh, the details of this indictment, it really seems like he's fucked on this one. And look, I... It is a Florida judge that he appointed presiding over this case. But, man, uh, the, the boxes thing really does seem to be a new level for him. Well, I mean, it's once again, he's now been indicted twice. No, 200 percent more than any other president. Pretty impressive. And in both cases, what he ended up doing is just something so spectacularly goofy and, and ticky tacky that it really doesn't impact the office that much because, you know, you can't have a precedent of presidents facing consequences for the really criminal shit that being president requires, but it's pretty easy to not just take a bunch of documents and put them in your bathroom. Yeah. Th <laughs> there, there are, so there are like two types, two types of uh, things Trump actually gets in trouble for, right? There's the first category and that's like, you know, we're just going to call that Eastern Europe, you know? That's doing Russia stuff. Oh, did he meet with Alpha Bank? Oh, there was a meeting in the tower. Oh, my God. He had a phone call with Zell Disney. And then the translator guy uh, became a hero. And that's like that's the stuff that he never got in trouble for. Because A, ultimately, who cares? You can probably as an American, you can do anything to Ukraine or Russia and no one will know. It's too much to figure out. There's a whole other alphabet. No one cares. And also, uh, on the legal side, if you do, those are generally things that if you do prosecute them, they get into the realm of like the regular legal things the president does. Like Trump, uh, Trump threatening to withhold aid from Ukraine, he does it in a more buffoonish and less subtle way than other presidents. But ultimately, if you prosecute him for that, then you can't go. Um, Hey, uh, we're dangling this IMF loan over your head uh, unless you revoke uh, Assange's uh, asylum. You, you can't do things like that anymore. But then there are the things that are not generally under the purview of a normal president and are so stupid and clownish. Like the two things he's actually got in trouble for, boxes in January 6th. He's done them uh, more slovenly than anyone else. And Those, like yeah. When it comes to the boxes thing, I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of what you said about drug testing and MMA is that it's not a drug test. It's an intelligence test. And I'm just like, like all the defenses of him are like, well, he's the president. He can declassify any documents he wants and take them anywhere he goes and read them on the toilet. And it's like, well, he did it. He didn't do those things. And I, look, I don't give a shit about national security. I wouldn't prosecute him for this stuff. But the Fed certainly do. 
They really care about whether you're showing our plans to invade North Korea to a dentist in Mar-a-Lago. And I, I just like I get the impression that he really is in deep shit with this because all of these defenders in the conservative media, I have not heard the term nothing burger even once this week. And they've all moved on to these kind of like existential dilemmas. Like, what is the law, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they are making the point. Hillary did it, too. All these other people did it, too. And he's being unfairly singled out. And that is that's a different move than saying that he didn't do a crime to say, OK, but what about these other crimes? But the thing is, you can't go into court with that. It doesn't work. Remember uh, during the Alex Jones case when he when they were telling him, well, you just were lying about the Sandy Hook. And he's like, well, well they lied about the Iraq war. OK, fine. <laughs> that, they're not here in this room. That's not part of this case. Sorry. It's like, yeah, shit's fucked up and unfair. That's how the fucking cookie crumbles. (laughs) Uh, Ben, like, uh, you know, you cover D.C. Like, uh, how is this story like uh, working its way through the uh, the ecosystem of the D.C. media? Yeah, I mean, it's all anyone's talking about here. Uh, And I think one of the parts that you guys hit on that's true is like what what makes this different than most scandals in Washington is it's just more hilarious, right? Like it's not just that it's in a bathroom and there's a chandelier and the toilet is like really low to the ground. And it's the like, toilet a was so low. it's like a strange <laughs> situation, but also like he's on tape talking about it and he's like, Oh yeah, I could have declassified this stuff, but I didn't. Isn't that interesting? And it's like, yeah, it is interesting. And it's interesting that you're talking about it on tape and that eventually we're all going to hear this. And what are you going to say about that now? I mean, it's hard to call it a nothing burger, if he's just making it too funny for everyone to to not pay attention to. I like the, uh, did you see the, uh, the one where he's, he's literally talking to like a biographer on the record and he's like, yeah. And I actually, I have um, illegally obtained documents that I didn't declassify showing that general Miley wanted to invade Iran. They're like right over there. And you, there's an aide in the background, literally going, no. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't Kid Rock somehow involved in this too? Yeah. I mean, come on, like Kid Rock is going to, you know, ba with the ba. And then all of a sudden we're going to have like, you know, maps of, of, I don't know. What was it? Iran? What is he even showing? It was North North Korea. North Korea. Korea. (laughs) It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but Ben, you, you bring up a very important point, which is, how low to the ground that toilet was. That was like a, a toilet low. low rider. And I just think it's like, I, I like to imagine that that started out as a regular toilet, but like the density of the dumps being taken on it, like compressed the porcelain into like a, like it just lowered it. Not me, not me, you. Well, you know, there's, there's always talk about, there's always talk <laughs> about Trump having a golden toilet. And, and, and really the reality is like, no, it's too chintzy, right? He has like a low, weird, wide toilet. That's the actual reality of, of Mar-a-Lago. But then there's uh, that touch of class, the uh, the uh, chandelier, mm-hmm. and then the the illuminated sconces. It's mm-hmm. just so nice. And the, but then I, just a box of Kleenex on the fucking sink. I, just an open know. box of Kleenex. Well, you know, you got to jack off. Everyone has their favorite part of the documents bathroom. I like. Um, <laughs> I think every little part of a room tells a story. That's what um that's something I say on my HGTV show. Mm. And um I like I personally like the uh shower curtains that were taken out of the closet uh last taken out in 1985. <laughs> I like that I like those because it's like it's in this like country club sized compound but it's the same logic as like a 27-year-old living without roommates for the first time. Like oh, I have this extra bathroom. I might as well like put shower curtains here. Maybe a, a girl's friend will come here or a girl will find my shower too gross. Or somebody needs to, use a place this to one. privately read all the documents, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's never a good sign when your lawyer is in the indictment, too. <laughs> that's that's not good. Uh, that's not good. And like, you know, 37 felonies here. <laughs> you could probably go to jail for like a thousand years off this shit. But, you know, it does raise the prospect of like a Eugene Debs style presidential run in 2024. I mean, it could happen. I think your your lawyer being in the indictment is it's normally bad for Trump. It's good because it's like, well, then he has to defend you guys, even if you don't pay him. Well, no, he's looking for he's looking for a new lawyer right now that can defend him in Florida. Oh, yeah. And no one will cover him. Yeah. Like he has to get yeah. a public defender. He has to get the guy who's he has to get the guy whose hand is down his pants in that famous picture. <laughs> Dog, I'm going to jail. But uh, like 
I think it's an interesting, like, you know, the conservative media has taken a number of different tacks on, like, how to metabolize this. But Ben, like, have you been following the uh, any of the his prospective rivals in the 2024 presidential race? Like, how how are they uh, trying to uh, talk about this issue of Trump getting indicted again? I think, honestly, they're trying not to talk about it as much as they can. I mean, it's it's kind of pathetic, really. You know, there's all this talk about, oh, we, we need a new form of leadership. We need to move on. Uh, you know, I think they try to make the case subtly that uh, wouldn't you rather have a guy who's not indicted running for president? Wouldn't that be better? But then it's like, you know, there's one question that comes up every time. And it's like, well, would you support Donald Trump if he was the candidate? And everybody's like, yeah, of course. And as soon as you say that, like, you're no longer really saying that this is outrageous. You're saying, yeah, it's probably fine. I, I got to talk about um, uh, Trump's statement on Truth Social about this, which is a great post. He says here, the corrupt Biden administration has informed my attorneys that I have been indicted seemingly over the boxes hoax, even though Joe <laughs> Biden has 1,850 boxes at the University of Delaware, additional boxes in Chinatown, D.C., with even more boxes at the University of Pennsylvania and documents strewn all over his garage floor where he parks his Corvette and which is secured only by a garage door that is paper thin and open much of the time. Ben, what are the Chinatown boxes? Honestly, I don't even remember. Like, <laughs> all, all I can say about that is that's one of the most beautiful things ever written. It's like if I could ever write something as poignant as, you know, that it's like you know, Pete Seeger's little boxes. But for for this moment right now, just really beautiful work by by the former president it, there. It's the, it's the last sentence where he says secured by only a garage door that is paper thin and open much of the time. It's poetry. And I think I saw it's poetry. I, I think I saw Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan or someone on TV this morning being like, well, storing the boxes in a bathroom is better than a garage because a bathroom door has a lock on it. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So every part of it is so little kid, like it, starting starting with like, well, someone else did it. And then going like just arguing semantics over like which room of the house is safer. You, I, I have to say, I like try to follow all these things. I famously tried to decipher who Nellie and Bruce Orr were. I like to get into the mind of the conservative psycho who's really into these things. I don't know what the fucking Chinatown boxes or the Corvette thing is. <laughs> I, have, well, there were, I know a lot of lore and I don't know this. They, they found some as vice president from when he was vice president, some documents in the, his in his garage. Right. They also found some mm -hmm. with Pence. I don't know. I don't really know anything about it. Apparently, like they were technically classified, but it's a lot of that shit. Like they put a stamp on classified on almost everything. And it's not the, oh, the other thing. The university stuff is literally a papers that he donated to a university for like his record. <laughs> As opposed and, you know, to just shit that like was taken without being vetted and brought to his hideaway where how many uh, foreign agents have been like busted going in and out of Mar-a-Lago with like fake IDs and shit? Well, you know, if you if you if you want to check if you want to check out our plans to attack Iran, just uh, ask to use the bathroom. Speaking of like uh, how um, the uh, the rest of the GOP field is trying to take advantage of it, the candidate Ben is right. The candidates themselves are like um, it's either like Vivek going trying to make a cool principled stand where he's like. I would have a better chance if Trump was out, but out of principle, I want him in. And it's like, if all the other candidates died, you still wouldn't make it. <laughs> in a King like, Ralph is, situation, Vivek has a chance. Yeah, that's nothing's affecting your chances. You're not going above 2%. But um, I saw, not DeSantis, but DeSantis supporters had a very, as Matt pointed out, a very John Kerry in 2004 supporter online line, which was, um, I'd rather have a candidate who leaks sweat than leaks national security secrets. <laughs> Gee, just he feel the net roots pouring off of that. Uh, referring, of course, to Ron DeSantis, uh, he gave a some sort of uh, like gave a stump speech at a barn in Oklahoma where there was no air conditioning, so it was pretty hot in there. And he like sweat through his white shirt, and yeah, the DeSantis supporters are like, "Oh, the other one was like, imagine getting mad at a guy for sweating." And it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's mad. That's what they're doing when they yeah, see him just yeah, yeah. soaking wet there. They're just shaking their fist at him. The, and you know, the like, DeSantis people always do that with like any weirder fucking off-putting thing DeSantis does. They're like, oh, oh, look how mad you are at a guy shaking hands with his wife. Look how <laughs> look how mad you are at Ron DeSantis' cool voice and the awesome faces he makes. 
The sweaty thing is particularly weird too. Like Bernie Sanders was the sweatiest person I ever saw on the trail. And it was awesome. You know, it was just like, oh, here's a guy who's really working for it. And like the details about how he has to have his hotel rooms at 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. <laughs> he, he runs He's hot. Like me that for guy. Real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I do, uh, I do commiserate with DeSantis on the sweatiness. I mean, as somebody who sweats a lot, but yeah, uh, man, just like put a sweat uh, undershirt or something. You should, you should know at that age. And at that point, what's going to happen to you if you go to Iowa with the, uh, the humidity above a certain level. It might yeah. be his most relatable thing, though. I mean, he's not a particularly relatable person. I, I talked to somebody who once flew in an airplane with Ron DeSantis all the way to Tel Aviv, and he told me that the entire flight, DeSantis was sitting there like David Putty on Seinfeld, no headphones, no book, staring what? right in front what? of him, oh my twirling God. his hair, twirling his hair for an what? entire ride to Israel without <laughs> oh even God. looking down once. So if, you, if that's what you're like on an airplane, being sweaty in Iowa is like, oh, look, he's a human being. Oh my god! All right, that we need to make the, sure that that's actually yeah. sweat and some other sort of fluid. Yeah, it's not a yeah, like a oil or something. Yeah, five million dollars or a seat next to Ron DeSantis on a flight to Tel Aviv. Hard to pick. <laughs> I mean, he'd be quiet. You know, at least he's, it's it's a nice quiet ride. And you know, like uh, Ben, to your point about how like what se- what separates this from other uh, you know ab- aborted Trump scandals or still ongoing Trump scandals is that like this is funny, but it's also really easy to understand unlike so much of the other stuff associated with Trump. Like, for instance, in this indictment, I'm reading for the Times here, it says in one of the most problematic pieces of evidence for Mr. Trump, the indictment recounts how, according to his lawyer's words, Mr. Trump and the lawyer discussed what to do with a folder of 38 documents with classified markings. The lawyer said Mr. Trump made a plucking motion that implied, why don't you take them with you to your hotel room and if there's anything really bad in there, like, you know, pluck it out. (laughs) This is, this is like yeah, this one, there's no Lev Parnas in this one, Yeah, so to say. Well, and it's also, there's, there's there's two things happening at the same time. One is it's funny and entertaining and easy to understand. And the other is like the legal stuff is moving, right? Like there's an indict, like something is happening tomorrow. All these scandals that happened while he was president, it was like, oh, how's he going to wriggle out of this one? And the answer was time would go by and nothing would happen. But there is a world in which things happen because of, of all this. And it's hard to wriggle out of the actual you know, legal proceedings. Not impossible, but it's but it is harder. Well, that's what I mean by this stuff being an intelligence test. Because like, if you wanted to like uh, pilfer all kinds of secret documents, he probably could have just declassified them and then shown it off to the his golf buddies or whatever. But he never fucking did that, and, and now it seems like he's really fucked. Because as I said, like uh, it, the the feds really do care about showing things like our <laughs> all of our where all our missile silos are located to your friends. Yeah, there's a difference between breaking a norm, which everybody was always yelling about in the Trump years, and breaking the law. And they probably do just would like to get him just off of the board once and for all. I'm sure everybody in in Washington, to one degree or another, even in the Republican Party, would really like it if something happened. And this is the closest thing because it's a relatively depoliticized process compared to any of the political solutions to Trump. So they could just sort of go like, oh, this is terrible what they're doing to him and just like watch it happen and be like, ah, darn it. Oh, gee, look what they're doing. Oh, boy. Well, bye. Yeah. Well, and then whoever whoever is the candidate could probably run on it. Right. If it's Ron Mm -hmm. DeSantis, he could probably say, look, we have to fight back against the system that got rid of who a a candidate I would have loved to run against because, you know, he's a real true American (laughs) and a patriot, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this is this is the greatest possible thing for like, yeah, like normal, the few normal Republicans out there who like for the past six years have had to, you know, been like, oh, I hate Dove billboard ads. You know, oh, I I I hate the new multiracial Disney pretending they care about anything besides like tax cuts and uh, blowing up Iranian oil fields. This is yeah, they get to they get to make hay about this. While ideally getting a guy like uh, Glenn Blumkin or someone. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the, the other thing I've, that I've seen speculated about as regards uh, getting him out of the presidential race is people are saying like, oh, like the DOJ could just make a deal with Trump to drop these charges in exchange for him dropping out of the presidential race and like never seeking public office again. But like, how, how does that, how does that work? How is that legal? Like they can't just do that, can they? I don't know anything about whether that's legal or not. Also, <laughs> why, why would he do that? There's so many other things that he could get in trouble for. I mean, it's sort of like unless he says 
I can't be in trouble for anything I've ever done ever. Like it, it seems like not a great deal. He he would also like not take that deal because like, yeah, a, there's a world of other things. He's now like the armor has been pierced. Like he could get in trouble for like Georgia stuff now, as you said. And also like in his mind, he's assuming and like pro- probably correctly. So like the best, the most guaranteed way out of this is for him to be president again. Well, I mean, he's not wrong about that. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I suppose Joe Biden could make a deal with him to like pardon him for any crime he has done or will <laughs> done will do ever if he gets out of the presidential race. But I don't see Joe Biden doing that either. Uh, but yeah, the the we we love the boxes. I just and you know, people people pointed this out, like, but the the photo of the boxes in the bathroom is just like such a perfect manifestation of America in 2023. Like it just sums up everything about our government, our culture, and the people in charge of it. It's, 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 it's up there with the handsome hamburger party at the White House. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same well uh ben to move on from the boxes now i i would like to talk to you about your book the big break um because you you write in the beginning of the book that you're never you're not the kind of reporter who chases the big story you're more interested in the sideshow and that really is like, you know, the D.C. That, that you cover. You cover guys. You cover, you know, uh, p- people and their parties and like the weirdos, the flax, the kiss asses. Uh, like you cover that part of D.C. And like that's always been the most interesting to me. But like how does how does the sideshow inform the big story? Like how do you like don't you, do you get stuff that are like more telling than following these big stories? Yeah, I mean, weirdly now, uh, the sideshow characters like are the big story, right? I mean, that's what happened with Trump. It was all these people who were off to the side trying to make it big, being too strange and and bizarre to like have any influence, uh, became like the inner circle to the president of the United States and could become lobbyists who made tons and tons of money because they had the cell phone number for Trump, all that sort of stuff. So right now it informs like everything, at least in the Republican Party. And a lot of these folks have stuck around in Washington and become players. Um, The reason I got into it originally was because I thought it could inform the main story without being the main story. I could find somebody who was actually entertaining and interesting to be around, write about them and say, like, this person matters because they represent something or this is the direction the country could be going in. And honestly, like Washington has plenty of boring people. And I like to find ones that aren't totally boring to write about. Well, the one thing you say is that boring or interesting, everyone in D.C. pretends to hate D.C., but like mm-hmm. secretly, that's just pure cap. They all love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's a game for a lot of people here, right? Like, and, and, and the, the better you get at it, you can make more money, have more influence. It's like a big college, you know, it's like can't, it's like a college campus. Everybody has the same gossip and is eating the same food and, uh, you know, trading the same information. And, you know, some people just can't. It's like Van Wilder. Is that what that movie was called? Where you like just kind of can't <laughs> yeah. grow out of it. I, They're all I super love that, seniors. Um, yeah, you you talk about um, when you're uh, in the first part of the, the book, my, my favorite part, where you go to the Schlapp residence for oh, yeah. their uh, Christmas party. Uh, you talk about this uh, one Republican functionary who he's he's sort of like the archetypical functionary under Trump. And he's always talking about how he wants to get out of D.C. and he hates it. And, you know, you know that like none of these people are going anywhere. And I, I like that detail because it's it's universal. Like everyone, it doesn't matter who you work for, Chuck Schumer or Trump or fucking whoever. Everyone says that. But it is it's like the D.C. equivalent of like saying that you hate fake people, but you still you're still with the same exact people. You never cut anyone out, have the same problems. Nothing changes for the rest of your life. But those those back rubs that you get at the slap parties are amazing. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure something is happening behind closed doors that I did not see and did not want to know about. But uh for, you know, Just the think of the about- Shelley you've all seen in The Shining where she's running around freaking out. That's what's going on in Matt Schlapp's house. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, the thing about Washington is like, yeah, every everybody is pretending that it is terrible all the time. And look, I moved to Washington 12 years ago. I promised my wife we'd only be here for one year. 
It was like, we're not going to stick around. It's going to be awful. I'll just do it. I, you know, I got a job. I was out of college, you know, but we stuck around for 12 years, partly because like it doesn't all suck, you know, parts of it do. Uh, I wouldn't want to go to Sean, you know, McKelvey poker nights uh, for fun. Um, but if you can like get outside of what they call the bubble, there are like, it, there's artists here, there's music venues, there's bars, there's restaurants. Like there are people who don't just care about the industry uh, and it's a really nice place to live. And so all these people who say Washington sucks and I got to get out of here, like they're just not creative enough. They're the ones that suck. Figure out a way to make it work for you, you know? I, yeah, I love that all the people that say that, like, complain about how, like, uh, awful and fake it is. They're all people who, like, either work for, like, a, a conservative think tank called, like, the, you know, the windowsill project that's just <laughs> funded by a 150-year-old pedophile or, like, <laughs> have been working for Adam Schiff for 45 years. And it's like, yeah, of course it sucks for you. Look at everyone you know and everything you do. And lots of jobs suck. I mean, you know, having a nine to five job anywhere sucks and you can talk about how it sucks. But what matters is like, what do you do otherwise? I mean, how are you, you know, how do you spend your time? I mean, if it Washington is what you make out of it. Right. And I, I really do think that, like, there's good shit here and uh, people just need to find it. Although Hogan Gidley is the guy you're talking about, uh, who kept, <laughs> you know, wandering around this party oh, saying God. that he wanted to get out of here. Look, if he wants to get out of here, get out of here. I don't mind. Like, I, I hope that the people who like it here or who are, you know, who I would like find a way to like it here. But if, you know, the Hogan Gidleys of the world or the Hogan's Gidley, get, you know, get out of here. That's fine. <laughs> uh, well, in terms of like how the sideshow uh, informs the big story or how or how like the D.C. social scene sort of um, provides a more telling portrait of the contemporary Democrat and Republican Party than you, what, what you might otherwise read. Your, your book begins with sort of portraits of two competing parties. And uh, the first of which sort of sums up the uh, the Democratic side of the equation here. It was sort of, what was it, like a AOC was at the party, but basically the party was being held by the granddaughter of a man named H.L. Hunt. Could you describe who H.L. Hunt is? Yeah, H.L. Hunt was uh, reported to be the richest man in the world when he died, um, an oil tycoon from Texas. Really weird dude, like just a strange guy. He would like crawl around the office and tell people he was a crank about creeping. I don't even know what that means, but he would do that. <laughs> like <laughs> he would crawl on right, he would crawl around the office on all fours and just yep. grab people by the ankle and go, crank or yeah. creep here. Yeah, he's just saying, I'm a crank about creeping. I, I'll never know what it means. I hope I never see anybody cranking about creeping in my life, but I it's stuck in my head he's forever and now it may be stuck in, in your heads forever. Uh, and he was this kind of like right wing populist type who like helped fund the John Birch Society and loved Joseph McCarthy and, you know, whatever. The, Nixon, he, he was one of these guys. Uh, and his granddaughter, Leah Hunt Hendricks, um, who is very wealthy because of her family, is sort of uh, like the opposite. She is a progressive fundraiser who got her start on Occupy Wall Street and was like dubbed Occupy's heiress. Um, and she moved into a big house in Logan Circle, Washington, and, and uses it to host fundraisers and parties and salons and figure out a way to, like, you know, bring in a lot of money for the for progressive causes and progressive candidates. What, one of my favorite things about H.L. Hunt, and you note this in the book, is he's my favorite type of guy. He has a secret fa or he had a secret family. Mm -hmm. Two what, secret families. Two? Yeah, two. He had three three families in total at the same time, I believe, and and two of them were secret. Were secret. You could oh, get I away with so much one. shit before the internet if you were a guy oh, and had God. money. You just yeah. said you could marry a woman in the next town over and well, have he did. kids with he, her. He, yeah, he did. I think two of these women <laughs> lived like five miles from each other and never knew. <laughs> Was it, I imagine though uh, the granddaughter is not from one of the secret families she's from no, like the main no house. she is from one of the secret families that became a not secret family so oh, when so the first it was like a recognized died, bastard when the first oh. wife died the second family was like oh you can move from your tiny little house into the mansion that was designed i believe to look just like um george washington's mount vernon but there was one <laughs> difference and the difference was it was a little bit bigger so they moved into a <laughs> bigger version of mount vernon and got to live this life, but also like he was a terrible guy and like, a, you know, just a, no a way horrible person to live with. Um, but the house was bigger and they could, uh, uh, you know, kind of live this life of wealth in, in Dallas. Oh, man, I miss when like the 10 richest guys in the world were just crackheads. 
they were just like that. They had secret families and were like, you know, you 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 have to get under the blanket and play creepy crawlers with me. <laughs> <laughs> and this, well, the family, the family, it's like this real American family too. I mean, there's twelve kids or something, and they like kind of all went on to do big things because they had all this money. I mean, uh, some of them went on to own the Kansas City Chiefs and um, you know make and lose billions of dollars in the silver industry. It, they became kind of this American. You know, you could you could basically have a succession kind of show about them for sure. Yeah. Now every now every billionaire family is just they live in the same like just antiseptic house and they're all trying to live forever by drinking juice. It really went downhill. Well, they probably have bunkers in like New Zealand or whatever in case the apocalypse comes. But, you know, other than that, they're just living very boring lives. Yeah. Well, in terms of just the uh, the overall atmosphere at the uh, the hunt granddaughter party. Uh, the detail that stuck out to me was that uh, she has a little white dog that she named Malcolm X. Yeah, yeah. That's really honoring him. He would have loved <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm sure he would really love happy. that. To have, to have uh, some fucking, some rich white lady name her dog after him. Yeah, uh, yeah Malcolm, that what a Malcolm, fucking tribute. My, Malcolm, my <laughs> grandfather was the most racist man in America. And <laughs> he was rumored He was rumored to have been part of the MLK assassination, right? So you go from that yeah. to a, a, a dog named Malcolm it was, it was a little bit of a radical chic moment for sure um, at that yeah. party. But like, I, how would you contrast just the uh, the vibe check at the Leia Hunt party versus the Schlapp residence? Like this sort of the official Christmas party of conservative Washington, D.C. Yeah, it was weird, right? Because Democrats were like technically, you know, in charge of everything at the moment. They, you know, they should have been having like this raucous party at the White House. They had Congress. They, you know, everything was like in their hands. It was it, it probably should have been, you know, fun. Uh, but instead everybody was like worried about what was going to happen next. It was like, Oh, the darkness is about to come. We're about to lose these seats. We're about to lose the house. Trump or something like him is about to come back. And then in the Schlapp house, which should have been, you know, despondent because it was post January 6th, their party was out of power. Instead, they were all just like, Oh yeah, we're about to, we're about to come back. They, they all felt good. It felt like they were at a, a stock brokers convention where they had all bought, the stock at a low price and they all felt like it was going to skyrocket and they were going to make a bunch of money. I mean, Matt Schlapp during the Trump years, this guy was a, you know, George Bush establishment Republican before Trump, he became a Trump loyalist, made so much money as a lobbyist that the house that this party was in was the largest house on mansion drive. And so they moved into <laughs> oh, wow. to a, a very large house on a street <laughs> on, filled on the, with in them. the mansion neighborhood in the mansion neighborhood. They, yeah. I mean, if you can have the largest house on mansion drive, like it's hard to keep up with, with those particular Joneses that you, oh. yeah, you noted that it's a 10,000 square foot house. That's so many square feet. That's, that's too many squares. You can slap your brains out with that much space. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what you say about like the, the overall feeling at these parties is very telling of just the sort of, it was an actual party atmosphere at the Schlapp's house. And now did, did the Leia party, did this happen like r- r- around the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, they were just like a day apart, yeah. Yeah, so I gotta ask, at the Schlapp party, you had this lady like cough on you and be like, I have COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but but at, at, at the Leia Hunt party, uh, were, 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 were these D.C. liberals, are they masking indoors? They were not masking indoors, oh, but there was a lot, hmm. but, but there was a lot of um, a lot of Michigas about it, you know, a lot of talk. It was like right as I think Omicron had like just broken or whatever. And there was a lot of discussion about, is this OK that we're doing this? And then everybody would go up on the roof and. Uh, see, they, they can't would, have fun. They're they're yeah. co- congenitally incapable of having a good time. Not having you know, fun is they're having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's be, like you're, some truth it's insane. It's like you're already breaking the rule. Like you know what the fuck? <laughs> Whereas you, you go to the slap the, house, the angst toll. You got to feel bad about it. Like that makes you gives you permission to be there. And it makes you feel like a better person. Yeah, no, at the Schlapp House, you could go into the you could go into the wine cellar and they had like, you know, the original COVID so you could go sniff. It was like, oh, this is a, a vintage COVID here. You want you want Delta or you want Omicron? We got we got you can mix them together. <laughs> can I get a bump of that Omicron real quick? I'm trying yeah, to please. stay up late. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, but like, OK, like the, the Schlapps, Mercy and Matt are, are really they, they're they're wonderful characters in your book. And I said, I have a few sections here. Okay. The broccolini incident with you and Matt Schlapp. That was one of the funniest. This, that was great. This is one of the funniest like restaurant scenes that I've come across in like actual like reporting. 
but like could you just could you describe the the broccolini dilemma that you faced with match slap at a yeah, dc restaurant so i mean the the thing about this book that i hope makes it work is that like it's sort of vp in a way right where i hope it's funny i hope you have a good time reading it but also at the end you're like man that was fucked up like this is a dark dark stuff is happening but at least we're having fun getting through it and like it doesn't feel like a chore and spending time with matt schlapp was that way it was a chore for me but i hope i could at least you know make him seem like somebody to laugh at maybe in the book and this scene happens at a cigar club that he <laughs> belongs to. We go have lunch. These guys there. love cigar clubs. It's their, it's their weird smoking cigar cigars club. is their favorite thing. It was a weird cigar club. Like nobody was smoking cigars. It was really brightly <laughs> lit. It was like it, it was just we just support the idea of cigars. Yeah, it's like it, it's yeah. like maybe there was a hint of a cigar smell to the place, but I'm not even sure. And he, you know, was a regular there and didn't want to look at the menu and has this long back and forth. Um, with the waiter about what to get. And he really did not want broccolini to come with his food because he hated broccolini for whatever reason. It must be some, <laughs> some family tragedy there that I don't know about, but he really didn't want broccolini to come. Uh, he also asked at one point if the lettuce of a, in his salad would be cooked and the waiter didn't know what that was about because <laughs> like, the answer was obviously no. lettuce? Yeah, it was a strange thing. It was a, it was a non-cooked salad. Um, and ultimately, <laughs> one of those hot salads, please. one of those hot, hot, hot salads. <laughs> ultimately, broccolini did come, which was amazing for me to see. And he was upset about it and asked the waiter if like, what the guy does the guy who owned this place have own a broccolini farm or something. And I'm just there like this is people are going to have a, a if you want to understand Matt Schlapp and his like particulars, right? He he likes the creature comforts of Washington. He likes the cigar club. He likes what he likes. He likes. You know, he I think I described him as basically looking like if the if there was a football team called the Washington lobbyists, he would be the mascot like he just is the embodiment of Washington. And so watching him have this back and forth about, you know, broccolini and cook salad was like, OK, this this explains this guy pretty well. You uh, th- that um, right towards the end of that, uh, the broccolini saga, it contains a very haunting line, which is. One of the cigar patrons approached Slap and said, I saw you on Gutfeld last night. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a, a torturous Uh, series of proper nouns. (laughs) Look, I said um, I'm not quite a war correspondent, but like sometimes I get close. (laughs) Oh, God. Did you ever have to, how how many full episodes of Gutfeld have you watched? (laughs) I've never seen it, actually. I've just seen the clips that sometimes show up on my for you page on Twitter. And I'm like, this is not for me. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> I don't know who it's for. Yeah. It's a insane show. Yeah. I've never seen it. Uh- but also in, in in the broccolini back and forth, it's just like his quizzing the waiter on things that aren't on the menu or on the menu. Remind me of the uh, the part in Get Shorty where they explain that the Danny, De- Danny DeVito character, like celebs always have to order off the menu and they come in with some ridiculous thing like, oh, I'd like an omelet without the eggs or something like that. <laughs> but like, uh, like, when, when, like the waiter says, oh, we have a, a chicken mil- milanese. And he goes, what's that? And it goes like, it's a lightly breaded cutlet. And he goes, what's it served with? arugula, onions, and tomatoes. And then it said Matt scrunched up his face like a frustrated toddler. <laughs> Is this guy? I, was, I mean, he I, really like, he's like attendees and fries kind of dude. Yeah, I couldn't believe he didn't know what chicken milanese was. Like, that's, yeah. This is that a guy is who lives on, on the, Mansion Drive. Yeah, the, the Chicken milanese is like, that is on the menu at every type of restaurant he's eaten at for like, <laughs> presumably his entire life. Like, this is a guy who only goes to like, you know, a nationally recognized uh, steak chain like Palms or Ruth's Chris. Um, yeah, for sure. Y- you'd think he would recognize it, but no, it just uh, he's he's uh, just unfamiliar with all the non-steak items. Maybe he's a man of the people. In in a certain way, yes. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember when Trump was first elected? A lot of these like DC weirdos decided to go to steakhouses in DC and order steak well done and with a side of ketchup as like a way to to demonstrate that they're they were of the people and like you know they weren't like these snooty elites looking down their nose at ordering a well done steak and dunking it in ketchup. Yeah, it was like the the MAGA hat order of uh, of Ruth's Chris. <laughs> Uh, there's another really great, uh, some more, some more great detail about Schlapp here. I'm just going to read from the book here. It says here, Matt has been no- had been known to appreciate Washington's creature comforts. He was the person in the family who decorated their home and office, leafing through fancy catalogs at work. Pause. Mm. Pause. 
Uh, <laughs> well, we'll leave, we'll leave that on set, but it goes on to say, on a number of occasions, Matt tweeted complaints about having to be on a year-long waiting list to get his preferred brand of dishwasher. <laughs> That's got to be an amazing dishwasher. I mean, what does it do? You can put a full cooked turkey in the dishwasher and it just disappears when the cycle is over. It just I could it. I could see that as like a match lab afternoon activity. Sometimes I like putting entire meals in there and watching it through the window. I love Have you ever seen a meatloaf evaporate? <laughs> It also says he also took party planning seriously, curating the guest list and making sure everything was laid out just so. Once he had yelled at subordinates because he thought he thought the crab cakes at some event looked too small, went on a platter near some jumbo sized cookies. But at his Christmas party, the cookies were all the right size and he was all smiles. That's good. <laughs> I like a story with a happy ending. <laughs> and terms of those are talking about like DC home and garden. Uh the the contrast between the Schlapp residence and Frank Luntz's house is like one of the funnier details in the book because, okay, we got Matt Schlapp. He's on a year-long waiting list to get the right dishwasher. Now let's, let's, let's go to Frank Luntz where it says, we were standing in the backyard of Frank's home, a property he had long ago decorated with the zeal of a child who had lucked into a large sum of money. He filled his kitchen cabinets with shoeboxes full of baseball cards. He'd installed a riverboat gambler pinball machine in the basement. He'd placed a life-size mannequin of the Terminator by his back door and there by the deep end of the peanut-shaped swimming pool by the way by way of the big boy restaurant, the iconic mascot of a portly child triumphantly hosting a hamburger above his head. There was a Ronald McDonald too, Frank said, sighing, but it's gone. That's another one of those like really like existentially That's despairing haunting. questions. Haunting. I, I once had a Ronald McDonald, but it's gone now. What, <laughs> yeah. So Frank Lunch is like, like someone it, took it. <laughs> it's hard times, hard times. I like the idea of uh, like someone like seeing his house like a, a burglar and being like, oh, I bet this guy has tons of shit. And he gets in there and it just all like it's the worst arcade machines you've ever seen. It's like a, it's an arcade machine called like get Gary Hart to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a and, great arcade machine. I don't know what you're talking about. Monkey business, then, the pinball machine. And like just tables of like fucking John Anderson campaign memorabilia. And he's like, oh, what the fuck? And the Ronald McDonald statue is the only thing he recognizes. He's like, I guess I'll take this. <laughs> or maybe like his crypto investments all went tits up. And so he hit, needed some cash. And so he went to a pawn shop with a giant Ronald McDonald's. Well, you get, I guess Ronald McDonald, that's like a fun investment, but your future, your, your equity should mostly be in the Grimace statue. Yeah. You want to it's go Grimace's long birthday on the right now, by the way. Sure. And if you got Happy a four armed Grimace, by the way, that's going to be like the upside down airplane uh, stamp. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you're right. I mean, like Frank Luntz's house really does sound like how I would decorate a home if I was 13 or not currently in a relationship. It's basically how I'd want my house to be right now. Uh, but like Frank Luntz as a character, because like Matt, the, the schlaps, we, we're living in the schlap era now. Whereas like Luntz, it seems a guy whose star has like very much faith. He's like a Norma Desmond figure walking around his like Terminator mannequins being like the politics used to be big. It's the politicians who got small. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but the problem is like he doesn't recognize, or at least he doesn't vocalize, how big of a part he was in that. Right? Like we didn't, get yeah, to, we didn't just get to this moment in time without people paving the way. I mean, he worked with Newt Gingrich on the contract with America or for America or whatever. He helped Rudy Giuliani get elected the first time. I mean, like these are these are the steps uh, that get you to Donald Trump, and then he claims, "Oh, Donald Trump is the worst thing that's ever happened to, to the world." He's so bad it almost killed me. He said he had a stroke because of Donald Trump. And it's like, yeah, it's Trump's fault. Yeah, but also he tried to work. He, he also tried to work with Trump. I mean, he like went to the White House. He wrote on Air Force One. He tried to get Trump to stop saying build the wall because it was too political. He wanted him to say build the barrier. And I think Trump laughed what? at him. Trump laughed at him so hard that he was so offended he would never work for build Trump again. Barrier? Yeah, I mean, that is, Trump, that Trump is, was uh, right to laugh at him for that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that and, is a that is like a plot device in a DC cinematic universe film. Well, he was so offended by being laughed at that he never worked for him again, I guess. But, you know, he he claims to be to the reason I was at this house is he was starting to move out. It was like, wow, this is a part of my life that I'm done with. I used to have parties here. People used to care to visit me here. I used to want to be a part of this. 
and he it, he wasn't really moving out. He was moving out of that one Virginia house, but he has a penthouse in D.C. that he lives in. He knocked down four penthouse units to make one giant penthouse unit. He lives there sometimes. At least he has lived there in the past with Kevin McCarthy, who is you know the boys. Just his, wow. not just his it's Kevin, like but also. He's also the Trump's <laughs> Kevin, right? Yeah. And uh, he, he, he says he's so sick from Trump that he needs medicine, but he's afraid to inject himself. He says sometimes Kevin McCarthy will take the needle and inject him. It's like this dude's not <laughs> removing himself from Washington. He's still very much a part of it. Once I'm done with this period of my life where Kevin McCarthy gives me medicine every day, yeah, I'm, out. I'm <laughs> yeah. getting back to, I'm getting back to the, the, the pure, the love of the game, the thing yeah. that I got started in, which is gathering a group of 20 Americans who have all been struck by lightning in a manner that it's their fault and asking them what words here. Uh, will Kevin and Frank get to do the polling? I mean, what happens when Kevin McCarthy starts dating Sasha Gray? Will they still get to do their push poll? I, I think Kevin McCarthy and Frank Luntz is like, it's sort of the mirror universe version of uh, Sean McElwee and um, David Shore's hot boy summer. <laughs> Yeah, the same type of thing. <laughs> oh, by the way, that's a, uh, just as an aside. What what was the physical sensation that accompanied being in the room when you heard the phrase uttered? Uh, David Shore and I are going to have a hot boy summer. How yeah, did that I, mean, feel? I, ba- I basically melted. It was like, well, this is <laughs> <laughs> this is something I will never forget. Um, <laughs> uh, and I had no follow up questions. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one more one more line of like pure existential despair from the frank lotus chapter it's it's you said he was moving out of his giant penthouse and he says here i'm finding all this shit from ages ago frank said picking up an ashtray from the hollywood brown derby a long lost tinseltown haunt one of the greatest restaurants of all time he said (laughs) oh my god (laughs) all right uh Okay, so moving on from Frank Luntz, uh, here's a, here's a very important question. And like you know, you, out of all the DC reporters, you have been the guy on this beat, and the American people deserve an answer to it. Has presidential candidate Tim Scott gotten laid yet? <laughs> uh, uh, great question. Uh, I believe that his official answer is yes. <laughs> but when I asked him, I, I mean, just for the backstory here, I asked him yeah. this like tw- 12 years ago when I first profiled him, uh, cause he was a new, uh, member of Congress. He was probably 40 something, but I had found these archival, uh, articles from when he was a 30, 30 year old, uh, town councilman in Charleston, South Carolina. And he would go to schools and talk about, uh, abstinence. He was like, look, I've never been married. I'm 30 years old. I'm never going to have sex until I'm married. It's really important. And when I saw those articles, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to ask this guy. This This is going to be super awkward. I literally I like I called I called my dad and I was like, is it okay to ask a congressman if he's a virgin? And he was like, well, if he's in the public record talking about it, if it's part of how it's like, yeah, there's a good there's a good reason to ask him about it. So I wrote this whole script. You know, I was like, I I can't just go in there and be like, hey, congressman, like when was the last time you got laid? So I had to like write this thing down. I like, oh, in my research, I found this and I found that. And I was just wondering, is that a virtue that you still adhere to today? Which felt like a, you know. That's a very artfully worked. It's a good good question. He wants to make policy around fucking abortion. Right. Yeah, it's legitimately a, a fair question. So I felt like it was a good question. The answer was the weirdest answer I'd ever heard. He said, I'm not talking about my sex life with Ben Terrace or anyone else. And then he stood up from behind his desk. And he said, I have to go potty. And then he <laughs> Oh my God. He Dr. the bathroom. Floyd. Yeah. I mean, for a guy oh. who may or may not have ever had sex, he definitely did not have children. There is no reason to use the word potty. And I remember I looked over at the comms director who was sitting across from me and he gave me one of those like Jim Halperin shrugs, like Yeah, I guess uh, yeah. I guess I guess the boss just said potty. That was him signaling. He's like, whether I've had sex or not, I'm still one of the weirdest and most off-putting people you've ever met. <laughs> well, he came back after that. I guess he had a, you know, he's sitting around all his documents in the bathroom and he had a thought about, you know, how he was going to answer the question. And he said, uh, basically, like, I haven't been as good about it as I would have liked. I just wish we all had more patience. And then I said, okay, well, if you were to still go to schools, would you still talk about it? 
And he said, well, I'd still talk about it, but I probably wouldn't talk about my own story. And I was like, all right, this is a way of saying, yeah, I got laid, but I'm, I'm also not going to use those well, words because I, mean, like, I don't need it in the paper. How, how old is Tim Scott now? He's like nearly 50, right? Yeah, no, I no, think he's, he's older 57. than 57. He's old as yeah, shit. Yeah, no, he's... Okay, fuck. Yeah. He's, uh, well, uh, I mean, that's, that's patience. That's, that's a hell of a lot of patience. It is. They should have made him like stand up in the Senate and had like the sergeant at arms like record it after he had sex. <laughs> they should have been like, he's no longer a virgin. I mean, there's like, a, after Trump, there's all this talk like, okay, well, we need to, you know, safeguard democracy. We should have a law that says you have to re release your tax releases if you're going to run for president. You should also, under oath, have to answer if you've ever had sex. Why not? Just make it part of the presidential process. I think he should say, all right, you got me. I just wanted to sound cool. I, I still haven't had sex. But if I'm elected president, I promise to lose my virginity in the Lincoln bedroom. That would be, that would be yeah. good. That'd that would be, be yeah. That's a good answer. <clears throat> I well, think, it, yeah, I like your idea of sexual disclosures for candidates. And I also think that not all of them, because like not everyone the candidate has had sex for, because like, I mean, a lot of these guys are 80. You know, you're going to have a lot of people that died a long time ago. But like the last eight, let's say, the one paragraph yeah. review of the candidate. <laughs> See, I, I think the candidates should have to like appear in, every time they appear in public. I think you'd have to be wearing a T-shirt with their body count on it. That's officially verified by the FBI. <laughs> yeah. Like Joe Biden. Was he ran through? We don't know. <laughs> Joe is definitely ran through. Yeah. Um, well, and it, you, had a, you have another charming story about um, uh, politicians going to the bathroom in front of you uh, when John Tester whipped out his dick and took a leak and he went up in like a <laughs> tomato field or something. <laughs> and then like his comms guy had give you the gym from the office look and was like, um, can the senator's can the senator's penis be off the record? So yeah. let me ask you, how, how was it? How, said, how was his penis? Uh, yeah. well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here. I'm not here to describe it. All I can say is. Uh, when I heard, can the senator's penis please be off the record? I was like, how can I make that the title to a book someday? It's just, <laughs> I mean, a thriller, a thriller set in D.C. called, can the senator's penis please be off the record? Yes, please. John Tester, they really should have like run him at some point because just like like that, like uh, the fact that he's just like outside and he's like, this is a perfectly good place to do this. He's, is, he's not, he's he's not wrong. He's yeah. not wrong. Dude, you know, he showed me the, the uh, meat penis. grinder. That he still has meat slicer grinder. I don't even know. Oh, then that he cut, cut his off, finger off. Yeah. He cut off his three fingers, and it's the same one that he had that cut him off when he was like a kid. You'd think he'd get rid of that thing, but he's like, nah, it's fine. It still works. That shows he doesn't <laughs> hold grudges. That's yeah, no he's grudge. like the, yeah. yeah, the meat cutter is just doing its job. Yeah, it cuts some meat. Yeah. Uh, another another character you come across in the book is a man named uh, Robert Strike. Is that how you pronounce his name? Strick, yeah, Robert Strick. Robert Strick, Robert Strick. Uh, Robert Strick has sort of a beef with you. Could you could you talk about who Robert Strick is and how he's why he became so mad at you? Yeah, well, I can't exactly say why he came so mad at me because I don't really know. But the, he uh, <laughs> he's a lobbyist who for years like did a fine job as a lobbyist, like never really made a lot of money, and eventually you know got his ass handed to him by you know losing all his clients, and he moved out west and he started working on a vineyard and eventually he owned a vineyard in, in Oregon. He ran for the mayor of a small Napa Valley town at one point, just a weird kind of itinerant uh, guy who uh, was a low level Trump uh, volunteer in Oregon who made connections to like kind of the whole team. And uh, when Trump won, he was all of a sudden in position to just make more money than almost anybody. And it started by celebrating in Washington four days after Trump, was elected and a dog comes and sniffs his crotch. And he's like, what the fuck's going on here? He pushes away the dog. A woman comes uh, after and says, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Turns out this woman worked for the New Zealand embassy and was having a tough time connecting New Zealand with the new president, right? When Trump won, everyone thought it was going to be Hillary. Nobody knew how to do their job. Nobody knew how to be a lobbyist in the Trump years. And he was in position to say, oh, you want to talk to, you want to get your boss to talk to Trump? I, I can make that happen. And he did. He just found a cell phone number, got New Zealand talking to the new president, the president-elect of the United States, and he was just off and running, just making zillions of dollars, working often for foreign countries, sometimes unscrupulous, you know, countries. When I when I was spending time with him in the Biden years, he was trying to get a contract with the Belarusian dictator right as war was breaking out in Ukraine. It was like, he was that kind of a guy. And the reason I wanted to spend time with him is because 
he represented how the Trump era worked for a lot of people, just new, strange characters coming in with all sorts of power and influence that could never have gotten it before. But I wanted to know what happened to a guy like that once Biden came and did the rules revert back to normal or was he able to, you know, keep making it work for him? We, we, we can't let you go without talking about big Sean McElwee and his sort of bad lieutenant like streak of gambling on political races. You have a you have a pretty good roundup of or at least like uh, the the most comprehensive of any journalist, like a roundup of the bets that Sean McElwee placed on the midterm elections. How, how did he do all, all things said and done? Everything I saw, he did not do well. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he was very, he, it was very strange for me, right? Like I, this was a world I did not know at all. I didn't know Sean before I started reporting this book. He started inviting me to, to his happy hours and his poker nights, knowing that I was writing about him. And he would just brag about his bets at the table. And I was like, doesn't like, does he care that I'm writing this down? And he did care, but he wanted me to be writing it all down because he felt so like cool about it. He felt like, oh, this is proof that I'm good at what I do. I'm putting my money where my mouth is, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the of the year, right before the election, he like ran through all of his bets with me. And it was like Democrats losing like this many seats and Fetterman, even Fetterman losing. He just had all these bets and he was working for Fetterman. Uh, <laughs> and and pretty, much, pretty much every bet that he showed me, he he lost. But you, he you also said, you then, said he told you he said he told you at a bakery that he had over $20,000 put into predict it. And you say that like, this was like, you know, I mean, I'm sure Sean's making money, but like, if it doesn't go his way, this will like make or break his year. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of money. The thing about him is I think he was making a ton of money because not only did he have this data for progress job, which paid him $180,000 a year. And he would brag about how he was one of the least paid uh, executive directors in Washington. He was trying to show like, look, I do this for, for the good of the cause. But then he was also doing a ton of consulting for Gabe Bankman-Fried, obviously Sam Bankman-Fried's brother and his organization guarding against pandemics. And I think he was making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know he was making hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, a year just consulting for them. And so he probably could afford to lose the $20,000 and then just make up for it with you know another contract with the, the, bank, the Bankman's Freed like uh, until Hill. that money also disappeared. Having insider information like that and betting and then still losing, that's just, he's essentially Pete Rose. Yeah, and Pete <laughs> Rose didn't even admit to betting on his own games. I mean, that's the thing. Sean was like, yes, I'm doing this and I'm betting on my own clients. First, second time I ever met him, I think, or second time I ever went to one of his poker nights, he was bragging about how he would bet against uh, Nina Turner's congressional campaign. Uh, and he said that he had been working for the super PAC. So he knew that she was going to lose. And it, it's like, dude, I'm right here. I'm writing. This is like, <laughs> it's like if Pete, if Pete Rose had to email the rest of the big red machine and be like, Hey guys, I know it looks bad. And then Joe Morgan gets back unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he says, I think Fetterman is fucked. That was one of the last things he says to you. Yeah. The Fetterman team did not uh, like that. <laughs> well, uh, Ben, uh, we've been talking about like a, a lot of the, a lot of these characters in your book, and like since this is your beat, like one of our favorite things is like we love different kinds of guys, you know. And must credit our friend Brian Quimby, who has a, a podcast now called Guys, about just different the different various species of like uh, the 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 male of the human race and their interests and how that becomes a certain personality type. Do you have like a favorite stock DC character or guy? I mean, it could be like a an archetype or an, an individual specific person. Like who who's your favorite kind of DC weirdo? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like Sean was like the most interesting and amusing to cover because he just made it very easy. I mean, the job can be hard sometimes because so many people in Washington try to be buttoned up and they try to seem really smart and they, you know, probably sit down with their PR team and they say, I can say this and I can't say that. And you know, it's important to break through on those people and, and figure out who they really are because you don't only want to be covering the people who are desperate for it. But man, there's something that's just so great about a guy who will say every single thing that comes into his head, especially when half those things are completely idiotic. Yeah, I um, it's been very interesting to say the least to see um, Sean McElwee become this national figure in the past two years because he, well, I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say. Uh, especially under oath or, you know, with a gun to my head that I was part of that uh, scene he had in New York at uh, Blue and Gold. 
But, you know, I was always aware of him. We were all aware of him. He was like a, a guy that everyone knew. And he would, you know, it was clear that he had sort of like, you know, climber characteristics, to so to say. And, you know, I saw him like work his way up, like bringing Kristen Gillibrand to the to that uh, bar he was always at. But just like not only watching him become a, a national figure, but a reviled one has been fascinating. Like the the gambling thing is probably the dumbest fucking way I've ever seen anyone like destroy their own career in this stuff. Well, you know, it was so, so avoidable. What, what part of what made him such a good character too is like it was unclear uh, exactly what his motivation was. Right? I, you know, you, you think the people in Washington like to give him credit for a long time because. He created something, right? Most people in Washington who are blowhards are just blowhards. They go on TV, they're pundits, they say whatever the hell they want, they're wrong all the time, doesn't matter. He built an organization, give him credit for it. People who used uh, Data for Progress thought it was a good tool in their tool, tool belt. Like that's that's an accomplishment. And uh, the bet, my favorite interview in the whole book was talking to Sean's ex-girlfriend um, who was like kind of gently devastating about him, which was like, she wasn't trying to turn the knife, which is what made it seem like so brutal to me where she told me that like, first of all, she said on one of their first dates, they were hanging out together in bed and he put on a Spotify playlist that was not music, but it was Ted Kennedy's eulogy for his brother. Oh um, and that we was like, about, we talked about that. That was like his yeah. mood music. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and when, and, her point was like she could never tell and she was with him for seven years, could never tell whether he put that on or he did what he did because he wanted to do good, like, you know, ripple of hope stuff, you know, uh, make one small change that can make big change later. Or if all he cared about was having somebody read a eulogy like that for him uh, at some point, you know, after he died like that, that was his tension. And I, and I just find that tension very interesting in Washington because people do, a lot of people do come here to do good, but then they also, kind of get caught up in like the bullshit of it all and don't know whether they're doing good for the sake of it anymore or doing good because, you know, they want to go to a white house party or, or anything else. Yeah. It's, it, it's very hard. And like some would say fruitless or impossible to like get inside someone's head or their heart. Um, but with Sean, like I would have to guess that at some point there was like, Maybe, maybe not entirely, but like some inkling, some desire to affect things positively, even if that wasn't his primary goal. But it's, I don't know, you see people slowly morph. That's not a case of someone slowly morphing or getting involved in the bullshit. That's a case of someone instantly <laughs> getting involved with all the bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it kind of feels like, yeah, you start off with some uh, idea of an idealistic uh, career and then you realize very quickly that there is this uh, that you are going to have to give up any hope of feeling in a day to day sense of accomplishment. Uh, if you want to succeed, you know, if you want to uh, make money and, and to satisfy the personal ambitious part of that desire to do good. And so once those part and it's like, OK, I, I got it. I guess I have to make a you know deal with the devil realizing just how like how amoral the whole thing is i can see it just like breaking your brain and be like oh i can do anything oh it turns out do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law <laughs> yeah i think i i think that's like there's always like i don't know there's always a fork in the road for like a anyone who gives a shit about politics on any level right and for like normal people, for just like, you know, if you're on the level of just like voting and canvassing or anything, for most people, that's like, how do you reckon with losing? You know, for a lot of people who got into politics with Bernie 2016 or Bernie 2020, that proved to be too much for them. Like the, the, the trauma of like losing once, about caring about something once and losing made them so crazy that they, you know, now they're like, you know, fuck Shakespeare. He's a liar. You know, I'm 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 religious now, but for someone who works in it, um, yeah, you either you you either are like, all right, this is like grindy and awful, and I can easily lose myself, but you know, maybe I can affect something, or like, yeah, maybe I'll deal with it in the way that Sean did. It's like, do I want to keep my soul, or do I want that dishwasher that Matt Schlapp has? And you know, I'm saying it'll 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 melt the turkey. 
Yeah. I want I want the I want the dishwasher. I want to go to the I want to get slapped up when I go to DC. I think the the best thing you could be, like just for your own sanity and, and well-being, would be to be this one Republican guy who I love. Uh you 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 guys may know who I'm talking about. He's the the guy with long hair who's like the Republican super oh, the canvasser. Persistence. The, the persistence, persistence guy. Yeah, the persistence guy, yeah. He's like the happiest fucking guy in all of politics. I love He him. just he's like this Johnny Appleseed, but he's like using uh, Roundup instead of seeds. He goes to all these <laughs> yeah. states to uh, organize Republicans, and then they just eat shit. Yeah, he's he's fucking awesome. He's such a positive person. He's like the probably the only guy in America who's like, no, I am directly a fan of Kevin McCarthy. I will. I think Kevin McCarthy is awesome and a great speaker. He's the only happy guy. Everyone else, you know, who, who's to say? Well, if I had hair like that, I'd be happy. I think Charlie Kirk tweeted the other day. He's like, we need a million more Scott Presslers on our Ag- side. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I, yeah. He, Not he for like political having, reasons. I just like him. I mean, Charlie Kirk doesn't seem like he's having fun at all. He seems like he, miserable every second of his life. Well, he's legally prohibited from smiling. They said he can't do that anymore. <laughs> it's too gross. All right, Ben, I, I think we'll, we'll we'll leave it there for today. But uh, Ben Terrace, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show today. And the book is The Big Break. Uh, thank you for the book. And thank you for uh, really programming our show for the last couple of months. Yeah, yeah. well, thanks so much for talking about it, really. It, it's uh, it's great to hear uh, the, the content getting out in the world and, and making some people laugh. I appreciate that. <laughs> Cheers. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. And they all play on the golf course and drink their martini dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the university and they all get put in boxes and they all come out the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family and they all get put in boxes little boxes all